Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Claire Robertson, a physio and expert on patellofemoral pain, who runs a specialist clinic at Wimbledon Clinics in London. Claire has lectured internationally and has many research papers and editorials in peer-reviewed journals. And as you're probably guessing, this informed performance episode with Claire will be about managing patellofemoral pain in athletes. As you're listening to today's episode, please note that Claire will be launching a course on informed performance very soon on managing patellofemoral pain with athletes. And in the meantime, I've no doubt you'll learn a lot on that topic in this episode. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyze neuromuscular strength, performance, and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Inform Performance is a proud partner of Humac Norm by CSMI. Are you using your Cybex, Biodex or Humac Isokinetic system to its fullest potential? Most machines are used 90% for training and 10% for testing. If this is not you, check out the free online course Isokinetics 101 for the classroom by CSMI. In 90 minutes, you will learn how isokinetic machines are used in the clinic for testing and to improve range of motion, stability, control, and strength. If you need CEUs, earn eight CEUs by signing up and completing our full online course, Isokinetics 101 Online. This course is approved for PTs, PTAs, and ATCs. To find out more, visit humacnorm.com and head to resources. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's guest, Claire Robertson. Claire, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the invite. Just to kick us off, and just in case somebody hasn't heard of you uh, just yet, would you be able to kind of explain your background and give people context for who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm a consultant physiotherapist in patellofemoral pain at Wimbledon Clinics. I triangulate my work life, if you like, between a a niche clinical practice in patellofemoral pain, which is mostly second opinion, uh, research all around patellofemoral pain, both qualitative and quantitative, and teaching really through my Claire Patella business, which is teaching to clinicians, trainers, patients, everything and anything to do with patellofemoral pain. Something that just sprung to mind, and I've never spoken to this actually when we've spoken before, what kind of got you into this as an injury in the in the first place of all the injuries that exist? Yeah, I get asked that quite a lot. Why do you do this? Um, so it was really, I was doing lower limb musculoskeletal work, like quite a lot of people. And it actually was my master's because on my master's, um, for my dissertation, I looked at patellofemoral pain after hip replacement because I'd seen it happen a few times and I was intrigued by it. And I was actually dreading the dissertation. And then I did it and really enjoyed doing the research, which was a huge surprise to me. I got the work published and then the university actually said, do you want to carry on researching? And so then I started doing more research into patellofemoral pain and then people informally started 
sending me the patella from all pain patients because they th- said oh, she she likes those and then eventually Wimbledon Clinic said well everyone's kind of sending them to you anyway do you want to come and do a um do a service just in patella from all pain and that was uh, God, over 15 years ago and the rest is history <laughs> And we, of course, have a kind of webinar that we're going to release with you uh, in, in the very near future. Um, so this will hopefully today provide a bit of a sneak peek for the listener on uh, maybe some of the content that's going to come out in that whilst um, you definitely provide some value in the episode alone. Um, yeah. There's lots I want to get through from a kind of rehab in a more applied way uh, as it relates to this injury. Could you kind of explain, uh, as hard as it is to do it briefly, could you briefly explain maybe what the injury is, uh, the mechanisms and how you diagnose it, just in case um, there's a non-clinician listening who's tuning into the rehab side of this? Sure. Well, I think first of all, we need to be a bit careful using the word injury. Sorry to sound pedantic because it's not always a situation of structural damage. In fact, very often it's not. So patellofemoral pain is a diagnostic term that is describing a collection of symptoms. So really, you're going to primarily make the uh, diagnosis off the back of um, the history. So the things you're looking for particularly are pain on stairs, very often stair descent, pain on getting up from the floor, sit to stand, kneeling, walking downhill. Basically, there are therefore activities that provoke heavy load through the patella. Um, What causes that um, load and the load to be painful is very variable. And that's where it gets interesting. And that's where you have to use your clinical reasoning um, to look at all different aspects that may potentially be impacting on the loading of that area at the front of the knee. This is an injury that I personally enjoy treating. I'm sure that there's people that have a love-hate relationship with this, like there is all injuries. Um, Is there any, like, I, I know there's lots of other pathologies in that region that can kind of masquerade sometimes as this or present similarly. Where do you think or what do you think are the kind of key injuries that get missed or kind of misinterpreted or conditions in this kind of region that that relate to it? Yeah. Um, Well, I'll go for the big hitters, really. Um, So in our teenage athletic population, we need to be on our guard, particularly for two things. One is Oscar Schlatter's, so I'm sure you're pretty familiar with that. So that's elevation of the growth plate, the front of the tibia, the tibial tuberosity, particularly in um, kids that are doing a lot of quads dominant sports. We have a similar scenario, which is less common, called Sinding Larsen Johansson syndrome, which is basically an inflammation of the growth plate at the distal pole, the end of the patella. So, if someone comes in who is uh, actively is growing, often at an aggressive uh, point of growth. So, in the boys, it's often around 13, 14. Um, and they're pointing very specifically to the end of their patella. You need to be thinking about Sinding Larsen Hansen syndrome. So that's our sort of adolescence. At any age, we can get Hoffer's fat pad impingement. So that's pain and and swelling normally from the infrapatella fat pad. So the fat pad that sits just directly underneath the patella tendon under the patella. Um characterized typically by problems with extension, prolonged standing, um, or people that often have uncontrolled, poorly controlled hyperextension. That's, that would be something to be looking at. So we might see that in our 
elite dancers, for example, gymnasts. Um, and then the other one that's less common, but certainly you need to be on your toes for, particularly with um, people playing contact sports, is ruptured PCLs. So blow to the front of the knee, ruptures the PCL, the tibia sags back and overloads the patella. So yes, they come in with pain from the patella, but actually the reason they've got pain from the patella is they're overloading it because of the ruptured PCL that has been missed. So anyone that has a blow to the front of the knee as part of the history, don't presume it's the patella. Look, it's easy enough to look from the side, knee at 90, is the tibia sagging back? Have they actually got a missed PCL? We, um, we recently had Nick Kane on as a bit of a sort of tangent, but I'll bring it back to this. And at the end of his episode, we were talking about kind of uh, when you have a tough case or when you um, go to another clinician for maybe a second opinion, something I'm sure you do regularly with this. Um, without throwing specific clinicians under the bus, is there kind of any low hanging fruit or is there anything that classically you see physios miss with this injuries, but maybe before they send an athlete to you? I don't know about so much miss, but I think there is some, some there are some common mistakes. I think in rehab, um, and that is um, loading in too much knee flexion that creates high patella load, so it stirs the patient up. So the concept of doing strength work was correct. How they've done it is incorrect. So that's probably um, a really a really common one. Um, and I think also sort of managing, just focusing in on maybe strength, length, foot position, very biomechanical and perhaps not looking sufficiently at load management, which I think is really important in the athletic population for, uh, for this group. There's, there's lots of topics I want to get to like running, load (laughs) management and lots of other things. And we'll, we'll maybe get to that later, but I think to get us to that point, what might work really well is, could we talk through maybe uh, early management and kind of go through it almost like a timeline of when you work with a patient from start to finish in terms of like, what are you beyond kind of orthopedic tests? What kind of things from a strength perspective are you testing and, and how does that feed into early rehab? Well, so I think one of the things I'm looking for in their history is if if they've got a sudden onset of pain and or swelling. So sometimes this can be because they've had a heavy blow to the, so particularly saying your contact supports them, I've had a heavy blow, so the knee has been really bruised and sore. But that sudden identifiable um, onset then is a heads up that they could well have um, VMO atrophy. So and the implication of that is what I've shown with quite a lot of my own research is that the architecture of the VMO changes when you have atrophy. So the fibre diameter gets less, which means the fibres are more vertical, which means they're poorer at medializing the patella. So the, the thing there is to think about this concept of looking and for that obvious onset of pain and or swelling, as opposed to the patient where it's maybe just sort of crept on. So then I'm looking for, I'm particularly trying to link in when are they getting their pain and what is going on. So for example, I might have someone, I might have a runner who can jog without pain, but they can't do their sprint work, their speed work without pain. So then I'm thinking, well, 
what is the difference between those two actions in that patient? So if if it's that scenario, if it's speed work with a runner, that really implicates frontal plane control. So um, I'll be looking at um, strength and endurance with hip abductors. So it's, I really try, I know it's not very sort of recipe-like, but I'm actually really trying to encourage people to move away from recipe-like. So I really don't do a, this is week one, this is week two, or this is what I do at the start, because it totally depends on the patient's narrative. And that's why digging and asking them, when exactly does it hurt? And with patellofemoral pain, if it really is patellofemoral pain, it's very mechanical. So they will be able to very much identify, you know, it's when I uh, push off from a wide forehand open stance, or it's when I land from a jump on the volleyball court or or whatever. And then I'm really saying, well, what is going on with those movements that is overloading the joints so right from the start actually in the rehab I'm I'm trying to really link it in with with what's provoking to them I know there'll be a kind of pain neuroscience fan listening and um they won't always be content with the mechanical argument um you know do you I guess the, the those kind of classic patients when there's more of that pain issue are probably more the chronic overload or or maybe an, sorry an acute overload spike type patient how do you how do you combat that do you ever see patients where maybe pain is the issue and you can't nail down something overly mechanical yeah totally and I have a I have a loss of those patients probably about a third of my caseload and in fact I work really tightly collaboratively with a pain consultant for this reason and we consult in the rooms next to each other and we discuss lots of our patients together. I think the thing is, the longer the duration of symptoms, the, the higher the chances of non-mechanical pain. So ask about duration of symptoms. Looking for pain at night, which also could indicate bone edema, it could indicate inflammation, and of course it could indicate serious pathology, but that's something I'm also curious at. And sleep deprivation, poor quality sleep as well. Um, other questions I often ask people about clothing, the feeling of clothing on the knees. So if it's purely mechanical, they're not going to be bothered by the feeling of their jeans against their skin, say. But if they've got um, altered pain processing, then and, and perhaps some um, allodynia, that sort of thing, they will not like the feeling of the cloth. On, and some of those patients, whatever the weather, will come in in shorts. So that's a, that's something to uh, to be looking out for. And then the nature of the pain, you know, is it on off? I do this action, it hurts. I come off it, it's okay. Or actually yeah is it less mechanical um and more omnipresent or very difficult to read and then sure we're, i'm absolutely looking for um strategies that are moving away from the mechanics so sleep quality um trying to decrease anxiety and alarm make sure their beliefs are accurate about what's going on um so the the and 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 then potentially as I say working collaboratively. So we use local anaesthetic patches, we use chili creams, there's all sorts of tricks now that are available to help reset the nervous system without going into sort of heavyweight medications. 
Cool. Thank you. And I hope you understand I had to go there. I had to dispel the, the <laughs> elephant in the room clinically with that one. It's fine. Um, it's fine. It's, it's a good question. <laughs> you mentioned VMO earlier, and I might just skip past that one because I'm sure if people spoke to you about VMO um, at depth, you'd probably be very rich by this point in your career with uh, the way that conversation's <laughs> gone over the years. Um, one of the things I want to talk to you about is load management. And I think the term load management, at least in sport, is becoming a term that now ESPN and um, sports channels throw around willy-nilly and it's becoming a bit of a, a buzz phrase uh, beyond it being an actual clinical or kind of um, scientific concept so um, I'd be just interested to hear your thoughts like let's go really broad of this how do you kind of consider load management broadly for this injury and you can go whichever way you want with that yeah so really I think of three quite different things I think of intrinsic load so that might be um, have they got excessive load because they're quads are tight or have they got excessive load because they're dropping into femoral internal rotation overloading their lateral facet of the patella or extrinsic load so that might be say training volume would be classic so uh or it might be what type of training they're doing you know are they suddenly doing all the speed they've introduced the new training or for example I do quite a lot of work with the military so then we've got extrinsic load in terms of packs and hard boots but also we've got psychosocial load as well so that's anxiety pressure to perform um, maybe pressure of sports scholarships that sort of thing so I really think you have to consider all three intrinsic extrinsic and psychosocial load and to really look at at, at the overarching load and then right where is this a bit overloaded and what what am I going to do about it we we, um we were talking about strength and and this probably follows on nicely we obviously know that we very often have to do strength training with this population for for numerous um benefits whether that's for pain or for um capacity or for tolerance whatever the kind of reason we're going for strength is um I guess the question that comes up a lot with many injuries whether you're trying to get somebody back to running or just whether you're just going through the rehab phases is kind of how strong is strong enough. Do you have kind of tangible um, standards that you try and hit with patients? And I know context is everything for this. But I'm just wondering kind of how do you navigate like objectively what is strong enough? For, for yeah, I mean, you can, you obviously you can use, it depends, very much depends on your facilities. You use dynamometry, you can use isokinetics. Um, I mean, I do tend to go more down the functional route, I have to say, um, because I'm quite keen as well with patients being able to assess it themselves. So let me give you an example. So I'm very keen on good eccentric gluteus medius in weight bearing for runners. So I will often teach them to side onto a step to lower their contralateral, their other leg, and come back up to neutral. So that pelvic tilting, eccentric action. So so for a, a decent run, I would want them to be able to do, say, four sets of 20 with that, say. So then I might say, look, I want you to be able to do this when you come in from a run to ascertain how much you've gone into uh, fatigue because I want them to be self-aware. So I find that quite useful. Or for my cyclists, I might get them to be able to know that with a certain heavy-duty resistance band, they can sit with their hips, feet, uh, hips, knees and feet in a line with the band around their thighs and hold it isometrically for, say, 
three lots of a minute. So again, I might get them to do that when they come in from a bike ride so they can see actually straight away if their legs are doing that. By the time they finish their ride, actually, they're quite fatigued with that muscle group. Um, so, yeah, you can obviously you can go as fancy as, as, as you want, but I, I'm, I'm a pragmatist and I'm very much in favour of empowering the patient, getting them to buy in and understand what we're trying to achieve. Obviously, that's quite a low-tech option, and I guess that's kind of insinuating that the their like metabolic or endurance capability in a muscle influences their motor control and maybe intrinsic loading. Is that kind of fair? Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So if, for example, and I often get um, people that compete, runners that compete to get bring in photos of, as they cross the finish line because it's, <laughs> it's quite telling sometimes. Because if you assess someone fresh – you know, you, you might not see anything and then you look at them fatigue. So I will always say, if someone says to me, okay, I get my pain at 16 miles, I'll say, right, the next appointment, I want you to run to the appointment and I want to see you at the 16 mile mark. Then you look at them and it's completely different. So then you see the excessive or uncontrolled femoral rotation or the pelvic drop, the things that you need to know about that if you look at them fresh, you, you just you just won't find. Many of our um, listeners will be blessed with the bells and whistles of professional sports budgets. So they'll have handheld dynamometers, isokinetic machines, maybe, and, and probably force plates. Um, if you're looking at kind of capacity for measuring strength in those kind of settings, is there anything you go to or um, you particularly use? Um, so I, I quite like, um, I mean, to be honest, because of... I have an hour with my patients, so I make the decision to not particularly go down that route because I don't want to use too much time on those tools. But they've all got a place, definitely, and they've obviously also got a place for understanding how your progress is going and and, and you know seeing where they are versus different muscle groups, different, the contralateral limb. Um, I, I mean, all three of those things are are incredibly useful. Um, I think particularly, I would say, dynamometry for um, hip abductors and external rotators. Um, and I would also, with the external rotators, look at that in different angles of hip flexion because I think that's quite useful. So because you've got um, posterior fibers of glute me driving the external rotation in early hip flexion and you've got gluteus maximus as the primary external rotator in deep hip flexion so um, I would potentially be looking at testing in, in both of those ranges as well for that rotation um, and then you know your force plates obviously it depends also how irritable someone is you know, if you're looking at hop landing or jump down landing actually unless someone has got really no pain with that movement their loading pattern is going to be completely altered so you know I would definitely be saving that force plate work more for end stage analysis yeah um you know there's other things that of course people would rehab like or not rehab but train supplement and as a kind of supplement in this with like the calf and um oh, hamstrings sure. as well but I think we can't miss the quad um <laughs> is there standards or is there um key ways that you look at that from a kind of performance standpoint yeah well again I mean often your testing is limited it can be limited by pain so you know in the presence of pain you you I you know it's very limited value but I think um 
bear in mind as well, when you go beyond 50 degrees of knee flexion, deeper into flexion, the patellofemoral contact pressures rocket. So they go up every 5, 10 degrees from zero, but the graph comes up quite steadily. And then at 50 degrees, really climbs rapidly. And then beyond 90, it's almost exponential. So Bear, bear that in mind as well with testing um, and treatment that just because someone has got pain at, say, 90, don't, you know, so take the leg press just because they can't do it through to 90 doesn't mean they can't do it isometrically at, say, 40 degrees. So I'm a really big fan of really playing around with angles, both for assessment and for treatment. I think it's really useful. And even sometimes if someone's got a patch of bone edema, you know, five, 10 degrees difference is the difference between being on and off the bone edema. So it, it's quite important to be very angle aware, if you like. Sorry to sound so biomechanical, but I, I do think it's true. <laughs> no, and, and I, I'll be the first to admit, personally, I have a very big biomechanical bias um, still in my practice, um, probably from being a strength coach. So I have a very like objective obsession with how I uh, rehab and standardize kind of strength for injuries. Um, one of the things that I think becomes always a key decision for this injury, particularly in a sports setting, is how and when you uh, bring return to running back in. Um, personally, I kind of look at, I kind of set certain strength standards first and then monitor symptoms to kind of time that. But I'd love to know how you approach it. Yeah, well, I think the other consideration, I mean, I would say, I would, you know, yes, you want to get their building blocks, if you like, of um, strength and endurance in place. But I think that also it does slightly depend on whether there is any hint of pathology. So if you've got the luxury of imaging, which perhaps with high-level athletes you often do, um, if we've got the presence of bone edema, that is a scenario where you really shouldn't be pushing into any pain not because you're going to harm the knee but you're just not going to settle a knee off that's got bone edema that you are continuing to sort of prod and aggravate you need to let that bone edema dissipate but many of these uh, patients will have a normal MRI so they don't have any bone edema so there is nothing pathologically or pathoanatomically that we are needing to protect or be careful of so but similarly Pain does very funny things to how people move and use their muscles. You know, it doesn't take that much pain. And then suddenly we get alterations in firing patterns, alterations in uh, how we move. And we don't want that either. So I tend to allow people to run into minimal discomfort, so three out of 10. And I'm wanting to make sure that that's, pain is settling within an hour afterwards I certainly don't want them feeling it later on the day and most definitely not into the next day otherwise there's anxiety you've you've brought about an inflammatory response which is of no help to anyone Um, other things I'm very keen uh, right until the very end of their rehab is no downhill running downhill running is just vicious on the patellofemoral joint so obviously you're um your ultra marathon runners, uh, your mountain marathon runners, fair runners, that sort of thing. That's something that you have to manage your expectation on, you know, that you might have them running on the flats quite a long time before you're able to move into the realms of downhill running. Um, and, um, 
and speed work as well. Like I mentioned before, if we've got someone that's perhaps got issues with control in the frontal plane with a pelvis, then speed work might be something that I will be saying, look, I'm happy, I'm happy for you to run and we're going to set some, you know, uh, parameters around that distance, frequency, et cetera. But actually we're not going to do any speed work just yet. When we say speed work, are you saying kind of max speed work or just faster intervals of running? Well, we know that when you speed up, even just, you know, uh, start to break into a faster run, not necessarily maximal, um, you have to adduct your hip more. It's normal movement. So if there is a problem with control of that, then you are asking a lot of the very thing they're having a problem with if that makes sense. So uh, I would be wanting to make sure that I felt that they were equipped with that control in the frontal plane, eccentric control and endurance particularly, before they started doing any, uh, any anything that uh, sped them up. Yeah, that makes sense. How, how do you kind of monitor or progress the running, assuming you can kind of get them on their feet doing a jog or doing a little bit of basic running? How do you kind of uh, tend to navigate, and I guess context is everything again, but how do you navigate the progression of running loads or, you know, how far, how fast, how often they run? Yeah, it's so, it's so tricky, isn't it? Because it really does depend on sort of what their baseline is. You know, I had um, an elite, uh, very successful um, dis- ultra marathon runner recently. And, you know, when I, we were sort of, raining back to 50 miles a week you know whereas obviously we might also have our recreational runners where we might be raining back to six miles a week so it it, 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 it is very context specific um it's and I think looking at stepwise um progressions are useful as well so never on when I'm getting someone back into running never on consecutive days generally just so that we're mo- just keeping an eye on that response the day after um I mean this is obviously just initially um and then looking at there's um a, a, a researcher who's written a lot of work and some of it is quite old now but I still really like his work Scott Dye's work he talks about this concept of envelope of function so basically that's finding out really what their comfortable maximum is that's how I interpret it a comfortable maximum taking it up to that level consolidating for a week or two and then maybe pushing for a bit more rather than trying to up and up and up it every single time it's good to hear you say that because I know for sure in pro- when I see private practice patients that run and have patellofemoral pain, the key question I get in the running phase is the frequency of how often can I run? They always want, the people I see seem to always want to run every day. They're the daily runners that um, <laughs> want to restore their normal high volume of running every day or high frequency. Yeah, no, I know. That's something that I'm really big on. And I actually would encourage people to manage the expectation of that before they bring the running back in. So if I have someone that's really quite sore, they're not able to run at all, I will be saying to them, look, just so that you know, when we do start running again, we will we'll be aiming for an alternate day program. Otherwise, that, that sort of personality type can often be so keen to get better and, and keen to get running again that they think great I'm running but I'm only doing a small amount so it's absolutely fine to do it every day so 
get that in early. <laughs> I've had patients before where the motor control hasn't been as big a piece of the equation. And when I've done return to running with them, I've given them quite short, non-fatiguing, but fast kind of intervals. So getting them back initially quite fast. So going fast to slow is my running progression, um, knowing that they'll be more kind of springy, use their tendons a bit more elastic in the way that they run if it's controlled in that way. Um, but I've equally had patients where that hasn't been the case. Maybe it's been more the motor control uh, deficits with patellofemoral pain. Um, and I've had to go slow to fast. Is there anything I'm missing or is there any kind of wider context for this as to whether you go slow to fast or fast to slow when you do I would agree with it, I, I would agree with I would do both of those. Again, it really just depends what um but I think probably one of the most common things that I see is insufficient muscular endurance for what they're trying to do. And I think a classic group of this is people that take up running and they sort of run a 5K and they get the bug and then they run a 10K and the next thing they're doing a half marathon and then they've signed up for the London Marathon, but they've never, ever done any strength and conditioning work alongside it. And they just don't have the capacity to, uh, to exhibit decent endurance for that kind of mileage. I think something that gets missed as well is there's obviously a big trend for um, peak force. Everyone at the moment with the evolution of tech wants peak force, which of course is great and has its time and place. But those same tools that can give you peak force measures, whether it's open or closed chain, you can give people a repeatable task. So can they hit uh, a certain percentage of their peak X number of times to look at the endurance and metabolic qualities? Um, and I think, yeah, you- that, and that's super helpful for these endurance athletes. Do, do you have kind of um, any kind of low tech? Because uh, we kind of spoke about low tech and I think that's always good to cover too. Do you have any kind of low tech standards for, you know, maybe calf, quad, hamstring? You've obviously spoken a lot about hip abductors today. Is there other Yeah, kind of I mean, calf is, calf functions really important, I think. Um, and I think often what happens is if they have poor fatigue resistance in the calf, they will then cramp up. They then don't then they lose their dorsiflexion range, which means they'll either have an early heel raise in their gait cycle or the running cycle, or they'll excessively pronate. And we don't want any of those. Um, so I think the calf capacity is really important. So, you know, just even looking at single leg raise to fatigue is, a, you know, just counting is, is really useful if you don't, you know, if you don't have any tech. Um, and again, it's something reproducible for the patient. So, you know, does it, does it look reasonable given what they're trying to do? So if they can't even do, you know, three sets of 15 single calf raises and yet they're trying to run a half marathon, well, hang on, we've got a bit of a mismatch here. And that's, you know, just with body weight. And then in, in the, you know, calf raise is really easy to implement. Is there anything at the quad and also the hamstring? I know that obviously the quad is going to probably tie into hip abductors in terms of single leg control, but um, what do you do for the quad and the hamstring? Yeah, I mean, single leg, you can look at single leg squat, but obviously you sometimes are limited by um, their the pain basically um but you can sometimes even do shallow shallow arc and see at what point they're starting to lose their form or it might be right from the start but you know what point they're losing the form again you know what sort of reps are they capable of doing um hamstring 
again, I might be just even looking at sort of prone, fast uh, uh, flicking, just seeing, uh, you know, again, how long they can go for before slowing down. I mean, it also will slightly depend on, again, what their sporting requirement is as to what I'm going to be assessing there. But that might be more in the runners, say, or the endurance athletes. You've um you've been really kind of letting me kind of bombard you with questions <laughs> in any old fashion for this conversation. Is there, you know, before we kind of close out, is there any misconceptions, anything I've missed or any anything that you want to kind of get off your chest about telephone pain um, that you think would bring value to people? Um, I guess one of the things that I see the most is just a sort of where I think people are going wrong is lack of clinical reasoning so it's okay right well if I give some glutes and I go some quads and I go some stretches and I maybe give them an orthotic something there will work um and I mean I know your patients that probably the, the, the listeners that are listening to this probably have quite motivated patients as a whole but even for motivated patients they're bombarded with lots of different exercises that they don't really kind of understand why quite why they're doing it because it doesn't seem to make sense to them chances are they'll probably just sneak back into their old training and um they'll sort of drop off so I think it's just important to try and clinically reason and sort of put your detective hat on work out what's going on and then really zoom in on that and make sure you have enough time educating the patients so that they have buy-in because the number of second opinions that I see and I'll say to them what were you what was the gist of your treatment and they'll say oh exercises and I'll say yeah but what was what were you trying to achieve and they're like oh I don't, I don't really know I've just was given some exercises so I think we can do better than that I think it's really important to get the buy-in and then hopefully the buy-in also over the exercises then when you start doing more dynamic movement control work say jump landing if you've been for example during your exercises working on hip rotation control then when you get into jump land initially maybe you'll do some double leg plyometric work and you're then banging on about right watch those knees don't come in together they know what you're on about and then when it, you progress it into single leg jump landing same thing again and then you're going to do it whilst catching a, a netball and, and you but, but you're still hammering home the same concepts I think that's where we should be at rather than just throw a whole load of exercises and hope that something works yeah I, I think it's way easier to get by in, isn't it like when you if you don't educate the patient then they just think the rehab is the purpose but actually the purpose of the rehab is to get to um, a motor control standard that you pin to being where you anticipate a meaningful change, isn't it? Like no pain or the return to running. For sure. Or when you're this strong, I anticipate you'll be fine to run or do this. Whether that's arbitrary or whether that's database, you know, I don't, I don't think it matters necessarily in terms of how you educate them. Um, yeah, the education yeah. is king. It really is. Obviously, we're going to bombard the internet with news about this excellent patellofemoral course that you're putting together for us. <laughs> Um, but in the meantime, where can people find you and follow what you're up to? Yeah, so my website's probably the best thing, and that's www.claire, so C-L-A-I-R-E, Patella, all one word, so claire patella.com. Um, so there's 
my all my publications and links to the abstracts are on there. Um, my uh, blogs for clinicians and blogs for patients. There's uh, stuff about the fat pad, various resources. That's probably the best. And Twitter as well, Claire Patella. Cool, perfect. Well, Claire, it's been great to chat to you today, and um, yeah, look forward to recording more uh, more content with you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.